For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. The book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, we've spent the first couple of months studying this book. It's the first book in our Bibles. The first few months studying, we looked at the origins of everything that exists, the origins of humanity, how this world got to be the way that it is. And we spent the last four weeks, this is our fifth week now, studying the life of a man named Abraham, a man who turns out to be one of the most important guys who's ever lived. And what we've seen is with Abraham, God went and called him to leave his homeland where he grew up, to move a thousand miles west of there to a land that he had picked out for him. He said, I promise I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you into a great nation Even though Abraham and his wife Sarah had no kids and they were near or past the end of their childbearing years. But Abraham followed God and they waited and they waited for God to deliver on this son through whom Abraham is going to have this great nation come from him, his descendants. And they waited and waited and waited. And Abraham was like, is it going to be my nephew Lot? And then Lot leaves. And we saw what happened to him last week. And Abraham's like, well, God, is it going to be my servant, Eliezer? And God says, no, not him either. He says, Abraham, you are going to have a son from your own body. And so they waited. And Abraham's 85 and his wife's 75. And his wife, Sarah, says, well, let's try the surrogate mom thing. And so they do. And they get this woman named Hagar who worked for them to have a kid. And they have a son named Ishmael. And they, they're excited and they raise Ishmael. And Ishmael gets to be 13, and Abraham's 99, and God says, no, actually, it's not going to be Ishmael. He's not going to be your heir. I'm going to bless him. But you and Sarah, your wife, are going to have a son, even though you're 99 and she's 89. In fact, less than a year from now, you're going to have a son. Well, Abraham and Sarah, we saw, both laughed at how ridiculous that promise sounded. And God said, and that's why you're going to name your son Laughter. So you never forget that... This was impossible according to all human estimations, but nothing is impossible for God Almighty. I want to make sure you know this son is from me. And in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, God comes through on his promise. It says that Yahweh, that's God's name, kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant at age 89. And she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac, which means laughter, just like God said. Well, Abraham was 100 years old when laughter was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? Well, besides God, (laughs) repeatedly. (laughs) Yet I've given Abraham a son in his old age. And they're just so happy they have this son now. And we see that after all those years of waiting, God finally comes through on his promise, sort of suddenly, at just the right time. If you've ever had to wait on God for anything, you'll notice the waiting feels like it's going on forever, and then all of a sudden, boom! Boom! He answers, and it feels kind of sudden because you've got, finally gotten used to waiting. 
Yeah, God, he, he had to wait. He wanted them to make sure that they knew this was not anything they did, but this was something that God did. This baby was special. He was a supernatural baby, and there's sort of a long string of this in Scripture of fertility issues and God coming through in supernatural ways to show his power. And so he answers at just the right time. And yet, we see that the tension with the birth of Isaac, it increases the tension that was already there between Hagar and Sarah. Remember in Genesis 16, she gets, back when Hagar got pregnant with Ishmael, she, she tried to run away because things were so tense with her and Sarah. She came back, God said, you need to go back, you need to have your son, you need to raise him here. But the birth of Isaac makes clear Ishmael's not going to be the heir it, it further inflames or re- perhaps reignites the tension between Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. And by the time Isaac is three, the time when they weaned their, their babies back then, and Ishmael, so he'd be about 17 or 18, God finally tells Abraham, it's time to let Hagar and Ishmael go their own way. He says, Isaac's the son through whom your descendants will be counted, but I'll also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he's your son too. And uh, modern Arabs trace their lineage right back here to Ishmael. And so this would have been sad for Abraham. You know, he loved Ishmael. He raised Ishmael thinking, this is going to be my heir. This is the, he's thinking he was the promised son. And so now to see Ishmael go his own way, this was not a happy day for Abraham. And yet, <clears throat> now they have Isaac though. So they at least have Isaac to raise. And that's exactly what they do. Abraham and Sarah raise Isaac. And the text is really silent on all these years of Isaac's childhood. I'm sure Isaac was doing all the things that toddlers do, sort of toddling around, you know, learning to walk, learning to run, um, learning his words. His baby teeth are starting to fall out a little bit. He's drooling. He's laughing. He's drooling some more. And this would have been just a delightful time for Abraham and Sarah, this boy who they'd waited so long for. I'm sure they were doing all the things normal parents do, getting totally worn out chasing their son around. And, uh, you know, a a toddler can be a handful when you're young. These guys, they were 80 or 90 and 100 years old at this point. (laughs) And yet um, the joy of parenting, I'm certain, made it all worth it for them. You know, I'm sure they told him they loved him, and they would tickle him, and they would laugh together. I'm sure there was a lot of laughter, raising laughter. <laughs> you know, there's, there's just all these little moments that bond a parent with the child. You know, I'm sure Abraham would ask Sarah, so what do you think, Sarah? Do you think he looks more like you or like me? And Sarah would be like, well, I'm your half-sister, <laughs> So I think he looks like both of us. (laughs) But Abraham, I really think he has your personality. What do you think? You think Isaac would ever try to give his wife away to a local king? Like you tried to do to me twice? (laughs) And Abraham would be like, let's not talk about this. God has given us a son. (laughs) You know, I don't know... um, I don't know what age he would have learned his, his writing. They did have writing back then, contrary to what skeptical scholars used to think. There was writing. And um, I don't know if he would grab a pottery shard and write a little something to his parents, like my kids used to write to me. I, I've got parents that are a little bit past the toddler stage, you know. And um, 
Kids, man. Uh, here, here's, a, here's a little note my son wrote me when he was three and a half for Father's Day. This is the first writing I can remember getting from him. You have to have subtitles when three and a half year olds try to write anything. But it says, I love you. Have a good day. <laughs> to Babby is daddy. <laughs> love Matthew. Uh, here's a picture my daughter drew for me. It says, I love you, Daddy. Love Sophie. I just love the, uh, the smile on her face, the smile she drew on my face. Here's another one from my son when he was four. <laughs> I think I'm the tall one. And my wife is the short one. That was a strange Easter, I guess. <laughs> But, you know, as a parent, there's all these little moments like this where you just see the, the child, and you see the child's love, and it melts your heart, and you bond in, a, in thousands of different ways that only you and your, your kids sees. And this is what Abraham and Sarah experienced with Isaac. You know, I can see a- Abraham teaching Isaac about God. That's what God said he wanted Abraham to do, right? We read that last week. You know, I can see him saying, Isaac, do you know why we came to this land? Your mother and I, we come from a long line of idol worshipers. We weren't seeking God. He came and found us. And he called us to this land and he promised us that one day he would give this to our family. He'd say, do you know why your name means laughter? Because we wanted a son for so long and we didn't get a son and we didn't get a son And then God said, I'm going to give you a son way past the time we thought that would happen. And we laughed because it was so ridiculous. And now your name is a reminder of God's goodness, of God's power. He would have told Abraham about the promise that one day God's going to make our family into a great nation. He says that promise, he, he said, is going through you, Isaac. You will become a great nation. And it's through our descendants that somehow will be a blessing to all the nations in the world, and I, I don't know how. But God says it's coming, and I've, I've learned to trust God's promises. You know, they would have lived without some of the normal parental worries. You know, a lot of parents, especially back then, even more so, your kid gets sick, you don't know if he's going to make it. But Abraham could say, honey, we have the promise. We know as bad as it gets with Isaac, we know he's going to make it. We know he's going to become an adult. We know he's going to have kids of his own someday, that he's going to become a great nation. We have that promise from the very mouth of God. And so they may have, they might have eased some of their worries. And they saw Isaac grow up and become a teenager. You know, he goes through puberty. You know, he gets his camel driver's license. <laughs> wrecks the first camel. <laughs> Abraham's camel insurance goes up, but he doesn't care because he's got a son. <laughs> and he's just so happy. Well, by the time we reach Genesis 22, Isaac has become a man, maybe 20 years old. It doesn't tell us his exact age, but he's obviously quite strong, quite capable, probably of marriageable age by now. He's um, learning probably how to lead the tribe for that day when he would take over completely from from his father, Abraham. And, you know... I'm certain that most of the fondest memories in Abraham's life were between the ages of 100 and 120. Growing up with Isaac, loving Isaac, a a life together, so many memories. And during this time, 
We don't know how often Abraham heard directly from God. We don't have record of any direct speech from God, but the records are sparse during this time. I'm sure he walked with God. And yet, when Genesis 22 opens, we hear Abraham hears that old voice again, his old friend, God. And God comes to him with another message. In Genesis 22, verse 1, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. What is it, Lord? The God who's always blessed me. What blessing do you have for me now? And God says, please. Please. It's, it's not in most of our translations, but it's clearly there in the, the tense of the Hebrew command. It's a rare form for God's commands. He says, please. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, 50 miles away, the mountains around Jerusalem. And he says, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Abraham is speechless. Was he, was he stunned? Was he furious? Was he outraged? God, after all that waiting, you finally give me a son, and after all these years of raising him, and now I'm supposed to go march 50 miles, three days journey to this land around Jerusalem and offer my only son who I love up on an altar to bind him, to build an altar, to slit his throat, and then to set him on fire until nothing is left but the ashes of the whole burnt offering. God, how could you? It's no wonder guys like Richard Dawkins call this event right here disgraceful, divine child abuse and bullying. What is going on in Genesis 22? Why is God destroying this family, this father-son relationship? Well, there's a lot that Abraham just doesn't know going into this story. I'll, I'll give you just a few. Abraham doesn't know, for one, that God is vehemently opposed to child sacrifice. You know, I, I don't know if you realize this, but in pagan religion, the Canaanite religion of his day, child sacrifice was common. They found massive tombs with hundreds, thousands of the, the burned skeletons of infants. Yeah, local, local pagan nature religion thinking said God is, is the God of the harvest. He's, he's the God who gives a, a harvest from the field and a harvest from the womb, the fruitful womb. And so if you want to have a fruitful harvest, you have to take your first fruits and offer them as a sacrifice to God. You've got to pay the gods for their services. And if you want to have a, a, a big family... You need to take your firstborn and you need to offer him or her as a sacrifice to that God as well. A savage religion that God would later outlaw. For example, in Leviticus, he says, if any of them offer their children as a sacrifice, they must be put to death. You must not bring shame on the name of your God. God says, I do not want to be associated in the slightest with this horrific practice 
This is a capital crime. This is not allowed. He outlaws this later. And really, even after this story with Abraham, it became clear God does not, God, God forbids this. But, and, and today, we can know that God would never ask us to do something like this. We can look right there in his word. But Abraham didn't have the word of God, at least not like we do. The law of Moses wouldn't be written for 400 years later where God explicitly forbids it. And so he'd heard of this, and I guess he thought, well, maybe Yahweh is more like some of these other gods than I realized. He didn't know God is vehemently opposed to this practice. Secondly, he doesn't know how God will keep his promise to make Isaac into a great nation. He doesn't know how this story ends. You know, think about this, how different this was from every other danger to Isaac. Growing up, he could always know Isaac's going to make it through this. But now we have a direct command from God to kill him and and to burn him as a sacrifice. How is God going to reconcile that with his promise that he's going to make a great nation out of Isaac? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 says this. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, his one and only son. He knew the promise, but he also knew the command. And what was he to do? Well, as Abraham thought about this, apparently this is the conclusion that he came to. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. And really, more than the dead, he considered God would be able to raise Isaac from the very ashes of this offering. And raise him back to life. Well, I got to say, I'm not going to tell you how this story ends right now. We're going to read it, but please stay with us to see how God keeps this promise. He's doing something here. And that was the third thing that Abraham didn't understand is that what is God is accomplishing through this. Really, there's two things God is doing here. One, God is testing Abraham's faith like it says back in verse 1. Which raises the question, why would a God who knows all need to test anyone's faith? You know, when you go in for your final exam in your chemistry class, your teacher gives you a test because the teacher wants to see how much you know, wants to see how much you've learned. The teacher doesn't know, so the teacher gives you a test. Well, God, he's all-knowing. He doesn't need to test us to find out how much faith we have. He already knows. In fact, the test is designed explicitly around that. No, no. God's tests are different. One purpose of God's tests, and I believe a purpose here in this particular case, God tests you to grow your faith, to grow your faith. Even to carry the analogy of the the chemistry test, when was it that you really get serious about learning the material? Wasn't it the night before the exam? I learned more chemistry the night before my exams than all other chemistry I learned at every other point in my life. That was when you get serious, you buckle down, you study because of this challenge that is awaiting you. Or you think about a football team that might go through a series of tests on their way to the playoffs, on their way through the playoffs to the championship game that make them the team that they are, that bring them together as they they win the title. Again, that's a test that grows you, not a test to find out how much faith you have. And so when, when these trials 
And in the New Testament, the word trial and test are the same word. When these trials come into our lives, we can be certain God has not allowed anything into our, our lives that, that's not common to, to humanity in some way or another. It's not more than we can handle, but it says God provides a way out so you can endure through this test, so you can grow through it. And so we go back to the promises of God, like Abraham had to do here. And we, we go back over them, and we think about what God is asking me to do, and what I'm afraid of, and what he's promised. And we find our faith in those promises. If we, if we pass the test, we find our trust grows in a way that it couldn't unless strain was, was placed into our lives. So God tests you to grow your faith. God also tests your faith to show your faith. You know, even, God knows the limits of your faith. He knows how much you trust him. The problem is you don't understand that. And it's not until trials come into your life that you realize how much of my old beliefs are still clinging on. And he shows you where you still need to grow. And he shows other people your faith. You know, it's one thing to say I believe in God, but as, as a later author in the Bible, in the book of James, points out, you know, it's one thing for Abraham to believe in God. It's quite another for us to see his faith in action as he steps out and acts on the promises of God. That's the mark of real faith. It, it will lead us into action. And so it shows our faith. And this, this example from Abraham becomes an example that's pointed to again and again in the centuries to come, after it, as a tremendous example of incredible faith. So God, what God is accomplishing through this, well, it says, it says in verse 1, he's testing Abraham's faith. Also, God was predicting the cross of Christ. That's another thing God is doing here that Abraham just has no idea about. You see, what Abraham... Abraham and Isaac are about to do is act out the most important event in the history of the human race by marching to Mount Moriah to offer up his one and only son as a sacrifice. This exactly foreshadows what God, the Father, will one day do with God the Son. That he will offer him up on a mountain just outside of Jerusalem as a sacrifice for the sins of of the whole world, that Jesus would carry his own cross right up to the, the spot of the crucifixion, and that he would die and he would be buried, and three days later he would rise again from the dead. They will act out the most important event in the history of the human race, and Abraham gets to see this firsthand. You, you see, Scripture describes the cross of Christ from a variety of different perspectives. You know, you can read the first four books of the New Testament, and they're very brief. It just says, and they crucified him, or some variant on that. It's the perspective of the disciples. We can read passages like Isaiah 53, verse 5, written from the perspective of the believer, which say things like, he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins, that he died in my place. We can read about the cross from the perspective of Jesus Christ, the perspective of God the Son, in passages like Psalm 22, verse 16. He looks down and he says, They've pierced my hands and my feet. And he describes the agony from a first-person perspective of hanging on the cross. But it's really here in Genesis 22 
where God the Father tells us about the crucifixion from his own point of view. And we see the Father heart of Father God. And what a glimmer of what it was like for him to offer up his only son. That's why the first occurrence of the word love in Scripture is right here in Genesis 22, verse 2. God could have said a lot about love in the first 21 chapters of Genesis, but it's not until he says, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. You know, as, as a father, I, I just simply can't imagine offering up my child in this way. I've, I've sort of tried to imagine it. I just can't. What, another thing I can't imagine is not doing everything in my power to rescue my child. If my child were in any sort of real danger, you know, I've got smoke alarms installed in various places around my house, and it, I've thought about a scenario where I'm outside on my front sidewalk, and the fire is raging, and the smoke alarms are going off, and I know my kids are in there. And I've just realized there's nothing that anyone could possibly do No force known to man that could stop me from plunging into that house to rescue my kids. You could chain me up. You could break all four of my limbs. You could put the U.S. Marine Corps on my front lawn. I don't care. I'm going after my kids because I love them. The the, the parent-child love, the greatest love known, And that's because the parent-child love is rooted in the love between the father and the son that existed before the foundations of the world. And God is calling Abraham not just to not rescue his child, but to offer up his child. And he says, Abraham, my friend, I want you to see, like no one else ever has, and probably no one else ever will, what it's going to be like 2,000 years later when I offer up the ultimate sacrifice. God's teaching us about love. This is also why God sends Abraham to the region of Moriah. He says, go, you know, there's, Abraham lives in the mountains. Why, why does he need to walk 50 miles, a three days journey, to get to this one particular mountain in the region of Moriah. What's so special about that mountain? Well, we discover what's so special about it when we read the only other occurrence of the word Moriah in the whole Bible. 2 Chronicles 3.1 says, Solomon began to build the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. This is the site of Jerusalem. This is the site just up the hill where the temple was built, just up the hill from the old city of Jerusalem. And this is also the site where Jesus Christ would carry his cross. Just a short walk from the temple grounds to the nearby mountain of Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Moriah is the place where Abraham builds his altar to offer up his beloved son, And Moriah is also the place where 2,000 years later, human beings would build a cross for God the Father to offer up His only beloved Son. 
as the payment for our sins. Abraham doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know God would one day outlaw child sacrifice and human sacrifice of any kind. He doesn't know what, how God is going to keep his promise, which he will. He doesn't know what God is accomplishing through this, the testing of his faith for, for all to see, and the, the predicting of the cross. All he knows is he's just gotten the worst news of his life. God says, please take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of those mountains which I will show you. How does Abraham respond? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. I doubt he slept too much that night anyway. Maybe trying to get an early start before his wife is up questions she would have about this. And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Yeah, it's not that they didn't have trees on Mount Moriah. Something in the instructions of God would have told him the wood has to be brought in. It must be carried in by you and your son Isaac, Abraham. And so they set out. They marched for a day. They set up camp. They marched another day. They set up camp. And it says, on that third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place he was dreading. That place in the distance that God had told him about. I think it's interesting that it was on the third day. At this point, Isaac has been dead to Abraham for three days. Abraham has been grieving Isaac in his own mind for three days. And in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus Christ, it was on the third day that he rose again. After dying on Good Friday, he rose on Easter Sunday. And Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while the young man and I go over there. He says, You guys have served me well. You've come far enough, but... You guys can't come any further. Where we're going is a place for only the Father and the Son. We've got to settle something there. He says, we'll worship. And then we will come back to you. Yes, this was an act of worship. Romans 12.1 defines worship is offering your whole life to God as a living sacrifice. And that's exactly what these two would do, laying, this, laying what was most dear to them right there on the altar. He does say we will worship and we will come back because he believed that that's exactly what would happen. Somehow God would keep his promise and Abraham didn't know how yet. Well, Abraham at this point takes the wood from the donkey for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son, Isaac. And as with Isaac, so with Jesus, who would carry his own cross to the place of his sacrifice. Abraham 
carried the fire and the knife. Yes, the Father has the instruments of judgment in his hands. The Son carries the wood. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac is starting to get pretty confused. You know, he knew about sacrifice. They'd done this before. He sees they've got wood. He's, he's lugging that up the mountain, probably sweating pretty hard doing that. If you've ever climbed a mountain, imagine doing that with a load of firewood. He sees the, the, the knife. He sees the fire. But he, he's looking around. He knows that the sacrifice was offered in place of the guilty human. But he looks around and he doesn't see anything to sacrifice. And finally, he speaks up and he said to his father Abraham, he said, Father, here I am, my son, Abraham replied. Dad, the, the fire and the wood are here. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? The question Abraham was dreading. And in his answer, he speaks more truly than I think he even realizes. Isaac says, where is the lamb? And the father says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Where will the lamb come from? God himself will provide the lamb. Right here is the first instance of the Hebrew word for lamb in our whole Bibles. And in it, Isaac asked the question, where's the lamb? Isn't it interesting when we turn to our New Testaments and we find the first instance of the Greek word for lamb, we see God answers Isaac's question. It's not Matthew or Mark or Luke, but John, chapter 1, verse 30, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where's the Lamb? Here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there. And Isaac may have been like, Hey, Dad, can I help? And Abraham's like, No. It was probably the slowest altar ever built in Abraham's life because he knows what's coming at the end of it. He'd built many altars, but none like this. Abraham built an altar there. And he arranged the wood on that altar. And now the time has come to lay the sacrifice on the altar. And the text doesn't tell us what happened here. But there's no way if Isaac carried, was strong enough to carry a load of firewood up a mountain, there's no way 120-year-old Abraham overpowers him and forces him onto that altar. Now I imagine what happened 
was a conversation. Well, Abraham said, son, you asked, where is the lamb? And I don't know how to tell you this, but God has come and spoken to me. And God has told me that you are the lamb. And Isaac's like, but dad, what about the promise? And Abraham's like, I know. I don't understand how me sacrificing my one and only son, who I love, has anything to do with this promise that God will bless all the nations of the world through you, Isaac. I don't understand what these have to do with each other or how these fit together. All I know is we need to trust God here. And Isaac said, okay, Dad. I love you, Dad. And Abraham said, I love you too, son. And he bound his son Isaac and arranged him on the altar, on top of the wood. And at this point, I don't know whose heart is beating faster. Is it Abraham looking down on this son who he loves, who now he must sacrifice? Is it Isaac looking up at his father who had always been so kind to him? And now confused as to why he's being forsaken by his father. Or is it God the Father and God the Son watching the scene from heaven together knowing that this is a picture of a time 2,000 years later when they would not be together for the first and only time when God the Father would pour out the judgment for the sins of mankind onto God the Son. At this point, the text is straightforward. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife and slew his son. How does it make you feel to read that last line? Horrified, stunned, outraged. Well, if so, that's good. That's how you should feel. And if that is how you feel, I've got two pieces of good news for you. One, you're beginning to understand the scandal of the cross. The offense of the cross. Maybe you've heard about the cross before and it's, you've gotten too familiar with it. It's stories like these where we see the Father's love, not just for His Son, but His love that He would give up His one and only Son. His love for the rest of the world. The other piece of good news is that's not actually how the story of Isaac goes. The real story says this. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Important verb tense there. 
And at this point, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And Isaac's like, dad, you got a call. <laughs> Maybe you should answer that before we go to the next step. And Abraham says, here I am. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Do not touch your son. Now I know that you fear God, the, the fear of the Lord, deep reverence, respect for God. God already knew that. There's something about going through this, though, that he can say that. Because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. How does God stop the hand of Abraham? Not with his own voice necessarily from the heavens. Not exactly, no. It's the angel of the Lord. We've seen him before. You remember who he is? We've argued this is Jesus Christ. When Jesus shows up occasionally in the Old Testament. They call him the angel of the Lord. Every other instance that I know of, he shows up present. Here, it's a voice from the heavens. And he shows up and he stops the knife of Abraham. And this is why Jesus can say, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. In fact, he did see it. And he was so glad. When else would Abraham have seen the very hour of Christ? other than here on Mount Moriah. Yeah, Jesus, he watched this scene from above, knowing that one day he would experience it from below. And that in that day, there would be no intervention at the last moment. But the Father would indeed pour out the wrath for all of mankind onto the Son. And he would hang there, paying the penalty for your sin. What happens next is that Abraham looks up and there, in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. How convenient. Abraham said God would provide a lamb. Here he provides a ram. I guess the lamb of God doesn't come till much later. It's caught by its horns in the thicket. I guess that's kind of convenient too because... It's not in the bush getting all mangled and scratched up, but it's caught by the horn, so it can be an unblemished sacrifice, like Jesus would one day be. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. We see a substitute in this sacrifice. I wonder how Isaac felt standing there watching his father untie him go to the bush, capture that ram, tie it up and lay it on the still warm altar from, the, from his own body as he watched the knife plunge into that ram that was headed for him. As he saw the ram's blood drip down the sides of that altar and that ram burned up until nothing was left. You can be sure that Abraham was not the only one to learn something about God that day. 
What Abraham saw from the perspective of the father, Isaac saw uniquely from the perspective of God the Son. And so in the story, it concludes by saying, Abraham called that place Yahweh Yaira, which means Yahweh will provide. What a fitting name for that mountain and what happened there. And to this day, Moses tells us, it is still said, on the mountain of Yahweh, it will be provided. Of course, we would change that saying a little bit. We would say on the mountain of Yahweh, it was provided. And now it is finished. A few lessons we can learn from this story. I'll give you three. One, here we see the supreme example of faith in action. That millions will look back to in future generations, future from Abraham, future from us, and see what it means to really trust in the promises of God. Radical trust that had been learned over 120 years is what Abraham shows us here. And in the midst of these trials that maybe you're going through, we need to remember we can't always see everything God is doing in the suffering that we're experiencing and that we need to draw close to Him and trust even more in His promises as He calls us to radical steps of faith. Second, we see incredible predictive prophecy. We see the Father offering up His one and only Son. We see Him marching three days to the Mount Moriah where Christ would one day be offered up on the cross. We see the Son carrying his own wood. We see, we see the Father saying, God will provide the Lamb for the sacrifice, God himself. And we see all this 2,000 years in advance, painted in such a brilliant picture that no one could have seen it at the time, and yet we look now and we see the beautiful love of God shining forth here. And that's the final lesson we see the Father love of Father God. The love that began before the beginning of time. We see how much the Father loves the Son, how painful this would have been to sacrifice. And, and we see God's love, we see the Father's love for the Son so clearly that it's sort of a shock to read John 3.16. We expected it to say, for God so loved the Son. But what it says is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. That promise is for you tonight. Will you receive the love of God he's offering? Will you accept the sacrifice of Christ in your place? We also read in Romans 8.32 that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We wonder sometimes, does God love me? God, how do I know that you love me? And God says, look at the cross. I did not spare my own son who I loved. That's how much I loved you. And if I gave him up, how could you doubt my generosity in any other area? Even if you're waiting. I love you. 
so much that I gave my one and only son. And that's a love that no force on earth can stop God from coming to rescue you if you're willing to receive him. That's the powerful story of Abraham and Isaac. God, thanks for stories like this. That even with our very limited human perspective, it starts to let us in on one one millionth of the love that you have for your son and one one millionth of the love that you have for each one of us individually, Lord. Thank you that we can know that you who did not spare your own son but delivered him over for us all, how will you not freely with him give us all things? I pray that we can trust in your goodness as shown on the cross. I pray that we can trust in your justice as shown on the cross. And I thank you for this picture in the life of Abraham and Isaac that helped make that a little bit more real to us. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.